0: The Buddha talked of how this mind, this force or power of consciousness can be our worst enemy or the most benevolent friend. We've talked about the vastness of the Buddha's vision, that is the wandering through many lifetimes and through the different realms of existence and the presence of the innumerable world systems and the great immensities of time. In thinking about this description of the universe, if one can get a feel for that, creates tremendous spaciousness of understanding, creates a spaciousness of mind and of meaning in our lives. Although we may have a confidence or faith in this part of the teachings, it's still something which for most of us remains somewhat theoretical, that is, we may not actually have experienced this for ourselves. There's another way of understanding the vastness of vision, which we can each touch, which we can each experience, an understanding in a particular way of the depths of this dhamma journey, and that is the opening to the experience of consciousness itself. Journey into the vastness of the mind. The most interesting, pressing, compelling question for us is what is this consciousness? How does it create all the worlds in which we live? It's creative of the physical world. It's creative of our emotional and psychological world. It's creative of the world of intellect. It's creative of the spiritual world, the power of this mind. What is the mind? What is consciousness? That which creates all of samsara. We can experience the power of this elemental force, this elemental creative force, very directly in our lives. In describing it, the Buddha talked of how this mind, this force or power of consciousness can be our worst enemy, or the most benevolent friend. No other thing do I know, O monks, that is so intractable as an undeveloped mind. An undeveloped mind is indeed an intractable thing. No other thing do I know, O monks, that is so tractable as a developed mind. A developed mind is indeed a tractable thing. No other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much suffering as an undeveloped and uncultivated mind. An undeveloped and uncultivated mind brings suffering indeed. And no other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much happiness as a developed and cultivated mind. Developed and cultivated mind brings happiness indeed. It is the power of consciousness, the power of mind, which when undeveloped, is our worst enemy. Creates so much suffering for ourselves, for others. And the cultivated mind, this cultivated power, this cultivated energy is the most benevolent friend. We can see many examples of this just in this human worldly life of ours When you think of the suffering the mind creates in mental illness, in severe mental illness, in psychosis, where the mind is caught up and so identified with certain feelings and images and emotions, so imprisoned in particular creations of the mind, that there is no space, there is no freedom. It's as if there's this tremendous contraction which takes place. Buddha commented how the suffering of the mind can be so much greater than the suffering of the body. The knee pain may be bad, but it doesn't compare to the kind of suffering that the mind can create. We can see it even in our more ordinary kind of consciousness, not necessarily the the real pain of mental illness, but just in kind of our ordinary neurotic conditioning when the mind becomes obsessive, obsessive around certain thought loops that just go around again and again Maybe you've noticed it with certain songs or lines of songs. Just around and around and around. And it's like the mind gets addicted. It just can't let go. You know, or the suffering of being overwhelmed repeatedly when we get established in a certain pattern of being overwhelmed by certain emotions. when we get addicted to certain kinds of actions, and even actions that we know are harmful for us. But there's a certain addictive quality when the mind is uncultivated, undeveloped, unchained. And this addictive quality to these thoughts or emotions or actions are creative of suffering. And it's suffering which is born out of this mind, born out of consciousness. It's as if we're imprisoned. And even when we're not particularly in a state of addiction, even in our more ordinary lives, we can see the power of the mind when it's untrained to create suffering. You know, it's, it's really like moments of temporary insanity in our relationships with people when we can't let go of anger or resentment you know, or hatred, when we don't know how to let go and we don't understand how to let go. If we were doing to ourselves physically what we do to ourselves mentally, they would lock us up. Because in this process of holding on to these states that are coming out of the mind, it's as if we're beating ourselves, we're tormenting ourselves. We see it very clearly on retreat. Now we can see so clearly this power of the mind. We see it in yogi mind. And all the examples of that. One time when I was sitting in Burma, yogi mind got so bad. The two yogis there, there, there was the war of the fan. And here there are window wars. There there was the fan. Should the fan be on or should the fan be off in the meditation hall? And one yogi would come in and put it off and the other yogi would come in and put it on. They came to blows over the fan (laughs) as a way of developing mindfulness. (laughs) Somebody just came in a few days ago with a wonderful yogi mind story of a friend who was, a friend of theirs who was sitting in a small retreat center in Oregon and a few planes flew over, you know, a couple of times a day. And their mind got so obsessed with the noise of the planes that they wrote to the manager of the course to try and get the flight patterns changed. <laughs> <laughs> they are united. <laughs> Just... Where is this coming from? It's coming from the mind. The mind is doing all this. It's also powerful in a positive way. Not only is it powerful in these ways that cause us suffering, this quality or factor or energy of consciousness is tremendously positive, it's tremendously creative. It's as if there's a unfathomable depth to its creativity. It has basically created life. It has created everything within it. You know, and when you think not only, not only of life itself, but of the tremendous heights, you know, of perfection that have been reached in so many areas. You know, in the arts, and in science, and the intellect, and in the development of qualities of the heart. And all of this is coming out of the power of the mind. The development of a boundless kindness or compassion. There's so many stories. Of women and men who actually reach to tremendous heights of heroism in their lives. Where does this come from? This also comes out of the power of the mind. The Buddha's first verse in the Dhammapada, Mind is the forerunner of all things. And so it becomes this amazing inquiry for us into discovering what is it. It's so close. It is us and it has this immensity of power and yet we understand it so little. On one side of things, we can see that because of the constant change and impermanence, we can see the unsatisfying nature of all conditioned phenomena. Unsatisfying because, in fact, it doesn't last even a moment. Things are coming together because of conditions arising and passing away moment after moment. And so there's nothing to hold on to. Nothing to be the cause of a lasting satisfaction. And on the other side of understanding this, we can see that precisely because things are changing, that it is tremendously empowering for us. Precisely because things are changing, we all have the potential of Buddha within us things were fixed, things were static, if things weren't changing, we'd be stuck. (laughs) Well, this is how I am. And so on the one hand, to see the unsatisfying characteristic of impermanence, and on the other hand, to see what is empowering about the fact that everything is changing. It's precisely because things are changing, that we are able to cultivate and develop our minds. When we understand the process of this change, when we understand how it's happening, understand what's what in this world then we really have the ability or the capacity to fashion our lives. We're not just going blindly along, according to old conditioning. We actually can create our lives. We can come to a place of a genuine peace and a genuine happiness. There is a fundamental insight into the nature of the mind that is often not emphasized enough. And that is that the mind or consciousness, this knowing faculty, that the mind itself is pure. Just think for a moment of what this consciousness is. Presumably, we are all conscious. Consciousness is present in each one of us. What is it? This ability or power to know things. It's that power in the universe, it's that power in the cosmos, which knows. That's amazing, that there is this knowing, this power of knowing, which we all share. And when we begin to explore the range of this, we see that it's boundless. We can know sense objects through the different sense doors. We can know memories. We can know memories in this life. We can know memories of past lives. There's knowing of other realms. There's knowing of the world systems. There's knowing of all the factors which arise with consciousness in different moments. And so there's the knowing of greed. We can know this. We can know hatred. We can know anger. We can know love. We can know compassion. We can know wisdom. We can know the armies of Mara when they come knocking We can know all of the paramis of Buddhahood. What is it that knows? It is this power of consciousness. It is this power of mind. Do you have a sense of the immensity of this and the natural purity, the natural radiance of it? Consciousness can also know itself. It can know the knowing. And it can know that the mind itself or consciousness itself is a process arising and passing in each moment. The fundamental purity of mind, the fundamental radiance of mind is described in many of the different traditions. In one of the early suttas of the Buddha, he says, the mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, is glowing forth, but it is stained by the kalesas which have visited it. The mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, is glowing forth. And from the eradication of the kilases which visit it, it is freed. There's something reassuring about knowing that the fundamental nature of consciousness, of this great power of knowing in the universe, is radiant, is pure. It's described in some of the Tibetan texts, very similar language. This is from a text called the Song of Mahamudra. The essence of mind is like space, therefore is nothing which it does not encompass. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots and no home, nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind Once the mind is truly seen, discrimination stops. Can we see the thoughts and emotions as images as being just like the clouds that wander through the sky? There are no roots holding them. There's no home for them. They're simply phenomena passing through. Have a sense of the mind like space, which encompasses everything, which holds on to nothing. There are two important attributes of this mind, of this consciousness, that we need to understand. The first, which I've just mentioned, is the natural purity of it, the purity, the radiance of simple knowing, the power of knowing. But that it is conditioned, this consciousness or knowing faculty is conditioned by all the factors which come and arise together with it. If we lose sight of this, what happens is we become identified with different of these factors. I'm angry, I'm greedy, my judgments, I'm happy, I'm wise. All of these different conditionings of the mind, if we lose sight of the natural purity of consciousness, we identify with these conditioning factors which color it. We get lost and then we suffer. I'd like to read something from Ajahn Shah. It's called A Taste of Freedom. About this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself then we think that it is we who are upset, or at ease, or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. Just like a leaf, which is, a, which is still as long as no wind blows. The wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense impressions the mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful, Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Simply to see the original mind. The mind which is pure. The mind which is radiant. The mind which is glowing forth. Unmoved by the impressions, by the different mental factors, by the moods which arise within it. This is one attribute of the mind that is necessary to understand. The natural radiance and the fact that the Kilesis are visitors. The second attribute of the mind, of consciousness, which is necessary to understand is that it itself is conditioned, is not static. This knowing faculty arises in each moment dependent on certain conditions. It arises in the moment and vanishes, arising again in the next moment and vanishing. So it's not as if there is this one mind which is waiting to receive impressions, this one unchanging consciousness. Rather, this purity of knowing is coming together in each moment dependent on the conditions being there. Now, there's a certain implication in understanding this changing nature of consciousness itself. One implication is the understanding that this knowing or consciousness is also not self, not I, does not belong to anyone. It's not that I am knowing. It's not that there's anyone behind the knowing. It's not that the knowing belongs to anyone. This power, this universal, this power in the universe, this power of knowing, simply arises in the moment, dependent on conditions, passes away, arises again in a moment, dependent on conditions, passes away. And because it is of this static nature, it is possible for it to be suffused with energy, That energy can actually suffuse this power of knowing, this power of consciousness, and a tremendous intensity begins to build. You might have had either shorter times or longer times when you can begin to feel the energy in the system, the energy of knowing, the energy of consciousness itself getting more and more intense and strong and powerful. The question then in understanding these different attributes of consciousness, different attributes of the mind, is how can we abide, how can we live in its purity, in the natural radiance of the knowing faculty of consciousness, which is unmoved by the visitors, Buddha used images quite often. Of, he likened the taming of the mind to the taming of wild of wild animals. You know, the taming of a wild monkey, or the taming of the wild elephants. That there is a taming process which allows us to abide in the natural state of purity. When we begin our practice, we see how tremendously difficult this is to do. Here we are, you know, we spend three months just working to tame the mind. We see that it's just, just the beginning. Because the mind which has been untrained for how many lifetimes, it's a very fickle mind. And it's very difficult. It's just Give it the simplest of objects. Lifting. (laughs) Moving. It's simple. It can't get more simple. Nor an in-breath and an out-breath. And we see how difficult it is to do. After three months, I'm sure most of you most of us, you know how, 20 breaths in a row, that's really unusual. I mean, that is a very good sitting. I mean, in the course of five Mahakalpas and eons, what's 20 breaths? Yeah. But the mind is just of this nature. It's so flitting. So it takes a tremendous dedication and tremendous perseverance to really work at taming it. This is from the Dhammapada. It's a chapter called The Mind. Just as an arrowsmith shapes an arrow to perfection with fire, so does the yogi shape the mind which is fickle, unsteady, vulnerable and erratic. Like a fish taken from the safety of its watery home and cast upon the dry land, so does this mind flutter due to the lure of Mara. Therefore one should leave the dominion of Mara. How good it is to reign the mind, to reign in the mind, which is unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases. The mind so harnessed will bring one happiness. A yogi should pay attention to the mind, which is very difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. The mind well guarded and controlled will bring happiness. One who keeps a rein on the wandering mind, which strays far and wide, alone, bodiless, will be freed from the tyranny of Mara. I kind of like this these few verses. Because it's like the Buddha himself is acknowledging the difficulties that we face. And he's saying, yeah, I know, I know what this mind is like. You know, unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases, difficult to perceive. There's a, there's a note of recognition, you know, in reading this, because we can see the nature of our own minds. Our practice is this very gradual process of taming. Just over and over again, we bring it back. It wanders, it fickle, it wanders. Bring it back again and again and again. And you see in the course of a retreat like this, you know, there are some sittings or some parts of sittings. Well, all of a sudden, it's like the mind is calmed. The mind is tamed. It's staying just on the breath. And we get a glimpse, we get a taste of the possibility of what a tamed mind is like. And over many years of practice, there is a real perseverance and a real dedication and commitment to this task of taming this wild mind. Over many years of practice, we see the whole basic level but the mind abides in, gets more peaceful, gets quieter. When I look back now to when I began practicing, which was 20 years ago or so, there's a huge difference in the place in which the mind is resting. And yet, when we look from day to day, or even within one course, sometimes it's hard to see that. Again, described in the Song of Mahamudra, really describes very well the process of taming the mind. It says, at first, a yogi feels the mind tumbling like a waterfall. And in mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle and in the end it is like a great vast ocean. At first just like a waterfall constantly going, going, going and then it flows on slow and gentle. Something interesting happens in this middle phase though. After the tumbling waterfall and before the great vast ocean What happens is that we get a heightened awareness of all the kilesas. We really get a heightened sensitivity to the armies of Mara, to these stains on the mind. And at first it's very disconcerting because we're seeing them so clearly. It's almost as if there are more of them than there were before. The Buddha used a analogy which describes this process. He says, if you have a very dirty cloth, you're not going to particularly see the stains which are on it. It just blends right into the general dirt. If you have a very clean cloth, the stains are very obvious. In the course of our practice, the mind is actually becoming cleaned. We're purifying or coming back to the original purity or radiance of the mind. And as this happens, the kilesas which come, the stains on the cloth become extremely clear, extremely obvious and intense to us. What's most helpful to remember in this part of the process when we become so aware of these defilements of the mind is that they are visitors. They're not the nature of the mind itself. And because they're visitors we don't have to judge ourselves. We don't have to judge them. Now suppose you're living at home and a visitor comes that you don't want to say. You don't judge yourself for having that visitor come. Just if you're courageous enough, you close the door. Sorry. (laughs) What we usually do is we invite them in and we suffer. When are they going to leave? This is just what we do with our minds. You know, these visitors come. We know they're troublemakers. We know they're going to cause suffering. Oh, please come in. (laughs) Come and visit. Even worse than that. I mean, then they come in. And they deceive us, they masquerade as being self, as being who we are, make us believe that they actually live here. (laughs) Big mistake. They are visitors. The nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of this knowing faculty is pure and so when these visitors come if we can be mindful if we can be aware if we can be right at the door when they when they knock then there's the option saying well no no thanks <laughs> go next door <laughs> <laughs> What's so interesting about this process of being mindful enough to see what is actually visiting in each moment, you know, and to develop a strong discriminating wisdom in which the wholesome factors of mind are cultivated and the unwholesome factors, the unwholesome visitors are abandoned, are avoided. All that takes is a very alert mindfulness. We simply have to be present, very present, very alert, moment after moment, so we can see who's coming, what's coming. it's helpful to recognize clearly what states of minds are defilements because they are so clever that they often present themselves in ways that makes us feel that they should be there, that they have a right to be there, that they have a right to move in. If we have a very clear understanding, a really deep understanding of what factors, what qualities, what conditions of mind are wholesome and beneficial and which are not, that gives us a tremendous strength. Because we recognize them for what they are. This is from one of the early suttas of the Buddha. And what monks are the defilements of the mind? Then he goes on to list them. I thought I would just read you the list. As a way of helping to remember, to recognize these visitors as they come. Covetousness and greed are a defilement of mind. Ill will is a defilement of the mind. Anger is a defilement of the mind, hostility, denigration, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy are defilements of mind, fraud, obstinacy, conceit, arrogance, vanity, negligence, are all defilements of mind. And so we need to watch. We need to be observant. These are conditioned. These are conditioned forces which come and knock on all of our doors. But if we can see them, if we can see them just as they're knocking and saying, No, I see you. Mara, I see you. Then they don't have any power to stain the natural purity, the natural radiance of consciousness, of knowing. Knowing that covetousness and greed and all the others are defilements of mind, the wise person abandons them. When a yogi has given up, renounced, let go, abandoned, relinquished, even in part, these defilements. They gain enthusiasm for the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. And it is really true. When we see that we can let go, when we can abandon a particular defilement in the moment, we see that we don't have to invite them in. There's a tremendous confidence that grows in the power that we have. Gains enthusiasm for the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. when they are gladdened, then joy is born. Being joyous in mind, the body becomes tranquil. The body being tranquil, they feel happiness. The mind of those who are happy become concentrated. You now We have talked so much about understanding dukkha and opening to it and the all-pervasiveness of it. Really, what the Buddha is teaching is this whole path of happiness, of letting go of those things which cause suffering and seeing that we do it brings us this tremendous gladness and joy and happiness and concentration. It's helpful to remember that concentration is born from happiness, from understanding the nature of consciousness, from understanding the nature of this power of knowing. And I hope you can feel that it's not just this small little knowing which is located someplace. In the heart or the head or the elbow. I hope you can get a sense or a taste or a feel of the immensity of this power. That consciousness is boundless, and it is the creative power of the universe. And our practice is to discover this, to observe it in ourselves, so that we can see and understand. That's what creates such interest as our observing power gets stronger. We begin to see, begin to see the mind directly and everything that comes out of it. We begin to see very intimately that which stains it and that which frees it. Begin to understand the balance of effort and surrender. A great effort is needed to do this because without effort... As was described in the Dhammapada, the fickleness of the mind continues. It's untamed, it's untrained, we can't see anything. And so we need to train it, we need to collect it. We need to tame it. That takes effort. And at the same time, we need to balance this effort so it doesn't become efforting. It doesn't become a question of ambition. Or reinforcing a certain sense of self or I or ego in doing it. And so we need to balance the effort with surrender. We make the effort to be present and then to surrender to what is happening. So there's no forcing, there's no coercion in the mind. In some way it is the creation within us of this perfect balance of yin and yang. It's creative in its alertness, in its observing power, and it's receptive in its receiving or its listening quality, in its acceptance of whatever is there. At a certain point in this practice, the momentum of mindfulness is strong enough so that it starts happening by itself. It's as if we drop into or we become this current of changing experience. It's no longer the sense of someone on the outside trying to catch up to it or trying to hold on to it, or trying to ride it in some way. When the momentum of the mindfulness is strong, it's as if we become one with this changing process. It's as if we become one with the current, one with the flow, one with the stream of changing, unfolding phenomena. there's a very interesting merging which takes place. It's the merging of the wisdom which understands the process with the wisdom of the process itself. Well, maybe you can understand that a little better if you consider the analogy of the body. There's a certain wisdom, a certain understanding we can have of how the body works. And there's a certain wisdom in the body itself, which keeps everything going. You know, if we had to consciously direct everything, it would be a mess. There's a certain wisdom in the process. It's exactly the same in this process of phenomena arising and passing. When we drop into it with mindfulness, and the mindfulness is happening moment to moment, our understanding of how it's working merges with the wisdom of the process, and it just leads us onward. That is really this wonderful flowering of our dharma journey. begins to unfold or to flower by itself. One reflection which is common in many of the Buddhist traditions and which I'd like to close with, is the reflection about the preciousness of this human birth. And there are certain things about it which make it particularly precious. First, simply having a human body because it enables us to practice. It enables us to bring awareness to this process of consciousness. So that we can understand how it's happening. We can understand how it creates suffering, we can understand where the freedom lies. It's the preciousness of the human birth in our having access to the teachings. Because it's very rare in the world, it's extremely rare. And present it in a way that we can understand the teachings. It's precious when we have the inclination to practice. Many people hear the teachings and it does not inspire any confidence in them. To take human birth to have access to the teachings in a clear way, to have inclination and opportunity to practice. These are extremely precious and rare events in this world. And so a reflection on that, especially at the depth of practice that you now have, And you all have it. It's, I know from so much experience in sitting, it's so easy to lose sight of the level of sensitivity and openness. You know, as you're in there battling with Mara, you know, and all the forms, it's like that becomes so magnified that you don't realize the tremendous work that has been done. It's inevitable with the effort that has been put in. It's like everybody is in such intimate relationship to what is happening, to what is arising. From that place, this reflection on the preciousness of this human birth and the opportunity to practice takes takes on tremendous power. Please use this last week just as fully and completely and impeccably as you can. You've put in all of this work, you know, and you've built up a, a level of energy and momentum in your practice, and it's just, it's the dessert of the retreat. maybe a different dessert than you ordered <laughs> sometimes the waiter gets it wrong <laughs> but it really is the dessert you know don't don't waste it don't let your energy leak there is a strong tendency for that So it's not to get into a heavy judgment about the fact that a lot of planning thoughts or future thoughts are going to come because they certainly will. But use the power of your practice to see them for what they are. They are just thoughts arising in the mind. The thought of home is not home. It's just a thought. Don't be deceived. This week you have such tremendous opportunity to see how the mind creates the world. How it is that we get deceived by the machinations of the mind. Respect the practice, both for yourself and for others who are practicing. Respect the silence. This week is tremendously valuable and important. So use it, use the preciousness of it as best you can. Let's sit for a few minutes.